Tina koto na mihi nui ki te manawa whenua, uh, ki anantahu. We begin by warmly and respectfully acknowledging this land, Ōtatahi, uh, and its people, Naitahu. Kia ora, um, my name is Sophie, um, and I'm honoured to be here with storyteller, author, and all-round excellent person, um, <laughs> Ivan Coyote. Um, I'm sure you've all seen Ivan perform um, at least a little bit so far this weekend, and we're honoured to be getting to spend a whole hour with them. Um, so how freaking exciting. Yay. Um, so without so without any further rubbish from me, um, I'd like to welcome Ivan to the microphone. Thank you. Hi. <laughs> How is everyone? Nothing like the health and safety announcement to just relax you at the beginning of everything. And when we were going into the Isaac, what's the name of the theater? The Isaac something. They took us in the back door the other night and there was this woman with a clipboard. She was very officious. And, uh, and she said, you have to sign in. And then she looked at me and I said, you people, you take your health and safety things very seriously. She said, this is an earthquake zone. We have earthquakes here. She said, do you know why I'm here? I said, no, I don't. She said, I have a photographic memory. I study everyone's faces, and if anything happens, I will know which one of you are still in there and which one made it out. I could tell she was like, if there was an earthquake, she was going to leave me in there. So, for being a smart mouth. There's my, there's my schedule. Oh, that's, that's a relief. Rachel, I can stop asking Rachel where I have to be. Okay. I'm going to, um, the first thing I'm going to read is, uh, um, it's, a, it's a piece that was, a, it's a, a companion piece. I'm doing, a, I'm working on a collaboration with a Toronto uh, um, performer and poet named Vivek Shreya. You should check their work out, her work out if you, if you get a chance. And she did this beautiful, um, she did this beautiful photo essay called Trisha, and um, Vivek is a trans artist, and so what she did was, her mother was quite a beautiful, stunning woman, and so she found all these photographs of uh, her mom, and she went back and she replicated the photographs um, with her as the subject. And so she, it was mostly, came down to fabrics. She had to study, tra track down and find fabrics from the 60s and 70s and have these dresses made up. Um, and she wrote this beautiful um, piece called Trisha. And as, when she was reading it to me, and we're working on this collaborative project called Pretty Good together, um, she, uh, I, I, we got the idea to do sort of bookend pieces. And there was a lot of um, th sort of through lines, oddly, even though we come from very different places. And um, so this is, my mom's name is Patricia. And uh, so this is, it's a letter to my mother. And um, I, I'm gonna read it to you. And it's gonna eventually have a, a really, quite a beautiful backdrop of all these old photographs, mostly of Whitehorse, Yukon Territory, where I'm from in the late 40s and the early 50s when my mom was growing up. So if you can imagine that. <clears throat> my mother was also a very stunning woman. Uh, is still a stunning woman. So, uh, dear Patricia, you had me 14 days before your 20th birthday. I was your first of two girls. It was a story. That whole spring and summer, you had just been crowned rendezvous queen 
That's the bell of the ball of our winter festival. On February 28th, and then found out you were pregnant. They took back your tiara and your fur coat and your blue satin sash and your trip around the world. And you were married on March 5th. The sponsors could not have a pregnant princess, a swelling queen. I was born in August. Grandpa Al said, ah, you know what? It doesn't matter what he said about you back then. Not anymore. The pictures contain all the evidence of me right from the very start. Me standing naked in his work boots. Me in my hockey gear with a fishing rod. You with your hair in a perfect beehive. Even when we were camping. <laughs> I know I was never the daughter you dreamt of. Did you even dream of daughters? I've never asked you. I know you never got to go to fashion school like you wanted. But you used to sew our clothes from patterns. You were good at it. You made your own wedding dress. It was rust colored. I don't know if you wanted kids, but still you showed up, picked me up after practice, wrote a letter to the school so I could take shop instead of sewing class, band-aids, birthdays. Santa had your handwriting. <laughs> always it was you. The house was always spotless. I do not know how you did it all. He was more like a cool uncle that just dropped in. Your father's still at work, you would say. Thank you for starting supper, you would say. I would fall asleep to the sound of the clothes dryer still spinning into the night. I remember when you and he separated. He was gone somewhere, I don't remember where, and he left you to pack up the house when it sold. I showed up to help you put stuff into boxes. I had just gotten a fresh haircut. You look just like him, you said. And I held both of your hands in mine and felt guilty about the shape of my own cheekbones. I get my work ethic from you. And you get it from Gran. We all get it from Gran, you tell me on the phone. Your mother, she weighed almost nothing when she died. Her first job was in a cardboard box-making factory. That was where she broke all eight fingers in the corrugating machine. She was five foot six when she first came to Canada. It said so in her immigration papers, and four foot 10 at the end. What does a life of hard work cost a woman? Eight inches off of her back, you tell me on the phone. You are talking to me from inside your condo, and I am listening on the other end of the phone line, sitting in mine. I remember the first time I saw that picture of you in front of the greenhouse on 6th Avenue in Lambert. I'm ashamed now to admit I felt a little shame. Those old pictures telling all the stories you have left behind you, black and white dirt road and the humble clothes. Now I am older and I have replaced that word shame with others, closer to strength, closer to gratitude and to pride. I never prayed or confessed anything to the priest because he was your older brother. <laughs> And I knew some of his old stories, too. <laughs> Uncle Father Dave. Your brother, Father Dave. He died on my birthday four years ago. My mom kept calling me on my birthday, and I was drunk, and I didn't want to answer the phone, because she is worried about, you know, what runs in our blood. And, um, and uh, so finally, I picked up the phone, and she said, I'm really sorry to do this. Happy birthday, honey. I'm really sorry to do this, but you're... 
your, your Uncle Dave passed away this morning, and I was like, oh, my birthday? What an asshole. <laughs> Him and I never got along. And uh, she said, well, he obviously wasn't feeling very well. I don't, I don't think he was thinking about you. And I was like, well, now we'll never know. <laughs> he died on my birthday four years ago. I hope he finally found his salvation. I hope he was forgiven. I don't remember ever praying to God to make me a boy. I guess I just wanted for things to be different for girls. You gave my little sister your name as her middle name. I'm glad for this because it might have hurt you even more when I changed all of my names. I would have hated to have been given your name and then have to have had to discard it like I did my surname. You said my birth name came from a book and it meant warrior woman and you called my sister Caroline, Caroline Patricia. I'm so glad for the blood of yours that is inside of me. I love hearing your laugh tinkle and flash above all the noise of all of us in one house together. You've let your hair grow out silver. Your bangs are long and you tuck them behind your ear with one finger before you pour the hot water for tea or Ben to pick up your great niece. I inherited your good teeth and love, <laughs> and love of a clean kitchen. I think of you whenever I leave perfect vacuum marks in the carpet in the bedroom. <laughs> Some people call it OCD. I, I, I call it attention to detail. <laughs> ATD. If I had to hold only one memory of us all together when we were young, it was because you really were young. With, uh, with us. It would be Saturday mornings in the new house on Grove Street after we had finished the housework and you would put a record on. And me and Carrie would take turns standing on the tops of your feet and you would dance us around in circles on the freshly vacuumed carpet. <laughs> Super Tramp's Crime of the Century in America's A Horse With No Name and Cat Stevens' Tea for the Tillerman and always, always the Beatles. The sun cutting through the room in a yellow stripe behind you, and you would say, it is time to do these windows again. Look at the fingerprints. I'll do it in a minute. You knew the boogie and the hand jive and the box step and that one dance where you hold your nose and pretend you are going underwater. What's that called, anyway? <laughs> I knew this meant there was a time before us and this house and that job and the lawn and the laundry when you were freer, and you could play records in the living room and learn dances that had real moves and names. Dad would never dance. If he was home, he would sit on the couch and smoke that look on his face. It didn't matter. We had you. I, I called my mom and um, I, read her that, I read her that piece and it was pretty hard to read it to my mom and, uh, and, I, and there was a silence and, uh, and I said, so, um, so, so what, do you, what do you think, Mom? She said, well, we, honey, I got married on March 5th, not March 3rd. You got it right. <laughs> She's like, I don't, think, I don't think we listened to Cat Stevens. That was your father. I, we didn't listen to Cat <laughs> Did you notice what time we started? Do you remember? Okay, all right. <laughs> Bitter after 11, you say? Okay. Um, so this is another piece that follows a, a story about um, um, my Aunt Kathy Bolahowski. She was a 
Ukrainian cowboy, cowgirl boy. And uh, <laughs> um, it, it comes after um, a part in the book where I sneak out of her house and I, I, she, had, she, she trained horses and I snuck into her little horse shack and I found this six foot bull whip and I was trying to crack it and I, I did crack it. Uh, I still have the scar right here <laughs> on the top of my ear. And she was very nice and she took me into the house and she showed me every scar on her whole body and told me the story of every scar on her whole body, how, what had happened. And this is called Stronger Than the Skin. Under my chin. I was six years old, it happened out at the Tikini Hot Springs. It was a party for my mom's work. And I tried to jump from one tiled edge of the pool to the other deck on an angle. <laughs> I don't remember why. I, I didn't quite make it and I cracked the bottom of my chin on the tiled edge. Head wounds, they bleed a lot. I remember someone driving my mom and I back into town to the emergency. I remember the pressure of a rough white hand towel twisted into a knot full of chipped ice from the restaurant next to the pool. They used to make such good hamburgers out there. Anyway, when we got to the hospital, they laid me out on the paper-covered cot and a nurse unceremoniously pulled the towel away from my chin and my mom fainted a little from the sight of all that blood on me and she had to go sit out in the hall with a cold cloth on the back of her neck while they stitched me up. Eight stitches. It looks like a pale white staple now. It's fatter at one end than the other. Chicken pox scars. It's one on my forehead. It's another on my leg. I remember getting to stay home from school, but I wasn't allowed to use my light bright set because your eyes are very sensitive when you have the chicken pox. And I don't know if this is true or not. And I also don't know if it was chicken pox or something else that I couldn't use my light bright while I was healing up from it, but I always blamed the chicken pox. And now I think of that light bright kit. Whenever my fingertip slips into the dip of that scar on my forehead, it reminds me of those craters you can see in really good pictures of the full moon. Vaccination scars. There's one on my arm, another on the side of my calf. Did they still give those to kids? And have they figured out a way how not to leave a gigantic scar? <laughs> I don't remember even getting them, so they must not have hurt too bad. Right leg, just under my knee. It's about two inches long. It's, I was around eight years old. It's straight like it was done with a scalpel. I was tobogganing early. Do you know what that is? Okay. <laughs> early in the winter, and there wasn't really enough snow yet. Patches of frozen dirt showed where our sleds had rubbed the snow away, and I was kneeling on my blue plastic crazy carpet and sliding down the hill, and I leaned too much to the right, and I almost rolled right off my sled. My knee scraped along the snow, and there must have been a piece of broken glass buried there or something. It sliced right through my snow pants, my jeans, my long johns, and right into my leg. I don't remember how many stitches, which is weird because we used to, we were really into stitches. <laughs> we used to brag about stitches. I needed four stitches right in my head, dude. Oh yeah, well, my brother had 21 stitches when he nearly chop, chopped his thumb off on the bandsaw that one time. But I don't remember how many stitches. Maybe they used that butterfly tape. Was it even invented in 1977? <laughs> Base of my thumb, on my right hand. My sister and I got into a fight in the kitchen when my parents were both at work and she hucked a cereal bowl at me and I raised my hand to stop it and it smashed and cut my thumb pretty bad. I was about 14 and she was 12. We were afraid of getting in trouble for throwing dishes at each other inside the house. Inside the house, yes. So, 
So we swept up every piece of broken bowl and we wrapped it in a brown paper bag and we took it out and snuck the evidence into the Marshawas garbage can next door so our mom wouldn't find it. I probably needed stitches, but I bandaged it up and it eventually healed up without them. There's a scar. The scar's about an inch long. And one time when I was working on a movie set, someone noticed it and told me I could never be a hand model now <laughs> because of it. And up until that point, I didn't even know being a hand model was even a real thing. But apparently, you can make pretty good money being a hand model, but I am out of the running because of my scar and also because my hands don't look feminine enough to sell dish soap or jewelry and they aren't hairy or muscly enough to sell power tools or razors. Turns out this whole hand modeling gimmick, it's pretty gendered. <laughs> I looked it up after someone, directly after someone told me I wasn't right for it. Two semicircles. One on either side of my chest, where my breasts used to be. The scars are about eight or nine inches long on each side. There's also two small, round, red scars under my arms for, from where they put the drains in. I was 44 years old. It was my first real surgery because my dad says stitches and having an ingrown toenail don't actually count. <laughs> two and a half years later, there's still a spot next to my sternum, just to the, there it is, just to the right of the center of my chest, where if you poke it, I feel it about four inches over, almost under my arm. Something about rearranging the nerve endings. I healed up pretty good, I think. The scars are smooth and not raised, and when I am shirtless at the beach, I tell myself you can't really see them unless you are looking. They have faded red to pink to white now, and I am very pale. The surgeon told me in the initial consultation months before surgery that my nipples would be insensate after the operation, that I wouldn't be able to feel them at all. I heard him say the words insensate, but I, I told myself that the doctors always have to say stuff like that to protect themselves from lawsuits and accusations of malpractice. I told myself that doctors always give you the very worst case scenario, you know, so that you are grateful when some of the sensation comes back, so that you feel like one of the lucky ones because you didn't have any expectations. I didn't get to see my nipples until nearly two weeks after surgery. I had gauze bandages stitched right onto my chest to hold them in place so they could reattach to my body. I remember standing in the steaming bathroom after the first shower I had been able to have in 12 days, staring down at the new shape of me. I've always had a little red mark on my right nipple and I found myself strangely relieved that that little red mark was still there, <laughs> still on my right nipple. It's weird. I had spent an inordinate amount of time laying around healing and wondering if they had switched them around. <laughs> when they detached them and cut them to make them smaller and then stitched them back onto me. And I figured I had like mathematically a 50-50 chance, you know, <laughs> that they had got it right. But I'd often wished in the last 12 days that I'd thought to remind the surgeon to be sure not to mix them up. And I'm not sure why this would have bothered me so much, but it really would have. <laughs> Maybe it's the ATD. Right one in the right spot, I thought, and smiled. They used to be so sensitive. I was one of those people who everyone always made, is it cold in here? <laughs> Jokes about. 
I, I used to love my nipples. I, I just really hated having breasts. If I'd had an extra $30,000 US, you know, just lying around, <laughs> um, I would have gone to see this surgeon in New York State that I'd heard about. He's developed a procedure where it keeps a nerve stem attached and he can perform the double mastectomy without losing any sensation, but I didn't have an extra $30,000 US. So I made a deal. I traded the nipples I loved for the chest I needed. For the most part, I'm happy in my new shape. 23 hours and 56 minutes out of the day, it seems worth it. Sometimes you write a thing and then you're like, oh my God, am I gonna read this out loud in Christchurch? <laughs> I'm gonna read this out loud. Are you okay? Are you sure? Okay, just checking. What's that? <laughs> okay, why wouldn't you be? I'm not fine. <laughs> I'm terrified right now. Okay. <laughs> but sometimes in the dark when she puts her hand on my chest or when we're on our way out to a show and she fixes my tie and smooths it down over the top of my dress shirt with the red tips of her fingernails, I wish. I wish I could feel everything. The skin of the rest of my chest, now it seems hypersensitive. It's like it's trying to make up for the fact that my nipples are basically... It's two big scars now. They're beyond numb. They feel nothing. Sometimes I think I can feel the flesh underneath them. Maybe I can feel pressure there, but I, I can't feel her fingertips. I can't feel the cold lake or the warm sun either. But even still, every morning that I get up and just slip a t-shirt over my head and pull my jeans on and take the little dog out. Every time I swim or shower or sweat or lift weights or button up my shirt and step in front of the mirror, I feel grateful. I feel like I'm standing in the right shape of me now. And I know I would make the same trade over again tomorrow if I had to. Now, when I run or swim or dance or fuck, or ride my bike really hard, I can look down and I can see my own heart pounding there, just beneath the thin and tender skin of my new chest, my own heart pounding perfect, right beside my left nipple, which is exactly where it should be. <laughs> Thank you. So, oh, is this, that's like a half an hour in. So, do you, yeah, we, what do you guys want to? I just want to be like, keep saying more. No one wants to be your mic machine. It's totally up to, like, I, I, I've got another one, but it's probably another 10 minutes. But then we'd, so, so, but hold on. We have to, okay, all right. Rachel, look, I found my schedule, though. That's good, right? Okay, so I get these letters. I, I get a lot of letters, and uh, I, I read one the other night. Um, shouldn't I feel pretty? Uh, this one's called I, I Wish My Son. And so what I've done is I, 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 I ponder things. I get these, don't write me letters, though. <laughs> Just give me a couple of weeks. Uh, um, no, write me letters. I take that back. It's just sometimes, anyway, I, th I think about it and 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 then I, I write the letter and then I write the person and I say, hey, can I use this, uh, can I use parts of this letter and my response, you know, um, 
because they usually write me for for help or for advice or something. So I feel like it's a way of spreading the love. So this one's called I Wish My Son. Dear Ivan, hi there. <laughs> I am a mom to four sons. That is the first time I've said that. It's always been I am a mom to three boys and a girl. Still feels strange. My third child was born female and a little over a year ago we were told that she was a lesbian. We were shocked but supportive. She ran away about a year ago for two weeks. None of my kids had ever done anything like that. And again in April and she wouldn't return home until July. I was terrified. I was heartbroken and confused. Then in July, we learned that he identified as a boy, and soon he was calling himself Cameron. Finally, I thought we had an answer to all that rebellion. I won't say it was easy, but my husband and I and his brothers have all been very supportive. I've gotten myself educated on as much as possible. I'm actually a bit embarrassed at how many online forums and meetings and books that I have read. I have read all of your books, but my son is worse than ever. He isn't happy. His pot use has escalated. He's disrespectful, he's hard, he's cold, he's negative, he's lost all drive and passion for anything. He has a girlfriend and he seems happy with her, but he's just so incredibly awful to me. He sees a therapist on a regular basis. He starts testosterone on the 23rd. He says that I am the one with the problem. I guess I'm just wondering. You have all your stuff together. <laughs> You, why, why is that so funny? <laughs> Hold on a second. <laughs> you, you have supportive parents. Did you ever hate your family for no reason at all? I want so desperately for my son to have the confidence that I see in you. I want him to be happy and kind and respectful. I don't recognize him. I was told that gender dysphoria is when your body does not match your brain. Well, that, doesn't that mean that my kind, loving, thoughtful child should still be there? I feel like he died. Any insight is appreciated. <laughs> Thanks for what you do. I get these letters. I get these letters I can't possibly write enough or ever be wise enough to answer properly. I get these letters from good people with real questions and they turn to me with their hope and their hurts and their wonderings and their whys. And once I've read them, they haunt me like ghosts. Ghosts that follow me and whisper into my ear when I think I'm alone in the elevator. They walk a half a step behind me on the sidewalk as I totter around the block with my old deaf and blind dog and they ask me over and over, just what am I going to say to that? I'm writing you back, but I have to say this right at the start, I don't have anything figured out all the way. Most days I bend and stretch inside the bit of room I've made for myself in this world and I breathe a little deeper into the spaces trans people are fighting to make bigger. Most days I can see the changes happening, most days. But some days, the world piles up behind my eyes and on my shoulders and the fear gets in. 
I had a panic attack in the shower this morning. I haven't even told my closest friends. I'm only writing this to you now because the ghosts in my ears demand that I write you only the truth because that is all I have to give you. It's true, my mother is very supportive. The other day we were talking on the phone. She told me about a recent trip her and her boyfriend had taken to Skagway, Alaska. She said, do you remember that little fish shop that used to be right down on the wharf in the marina? Well, it burnt down, right? So they rebuilt it. And when I went in there to use the washroom, they had two bathrooms. And instead of men's or women's, the signs on both doors read either or. <laughs> so they nearly got it, right? But not quite. I mean, they weren't gendered bathrooms, so that's a definite improvement. Either an or, it kind of still supports the claim that there are only two genders and everybody kind of has to fit into one, right? But at least you could be safe in there. You know, I'd love for us to go back to Skagway again together one day. One day. You loved it so much when you were little, all those waterfalls and artists. It's hard to describe the love I felt for my 67-year-old, born and raised and still living in the Yukon, Catholic mother at that moment, that kind of love that threatens to tear a hole out of your eyes or your chest or your heart because it just got so big so fast. And there nearly wasn't enough room inside me to hold all of it. I could tell you that there were a lot of long, hard years between that conversation and the one I had with her when I was 18 years old and just coming out of the closet. I could tell you that I found it easier to write the words I am trans down on paper and publish them in a book that perfect strangers could pick up and read than it was for me to just come right out and speak those words out loud to most of my family. I could tell you that there are things about me in those books that my mother learned from reading those books that I still do not have the ovaries to say right to her face <laughs> to this day. I could tell you that my father, most of my uncles, and one of my aunts still refuse to call me anything but my birth name, even though I've been going by Ivan now for longer than I used the name I was born with, even though it says Ivan in my passport, even though I lose a little bit of my heart every time anyone I love calls me by my old name, even though I wouldn't think to turn around anymore if I heard it called out on the street. Some trans activists call this my dead name. I feel uncomfortable with this term but I still haven't figured out why. I do not hate my father. I just know there are places in me, there are things about me that he will never understand, that he does not want to understand. And I, I try not to let this hurt anything but the surface of me, but it pushes a space between us. It's a little wider. Every time I hang up the phone or wave goodbye, he never asks me how I am or what I'm doing or who I love or who loves me. So every day that passes, I become more of a stranger to him, I guess. And I've learned to make this our normal. And I try to concentrate on the things we have in common, the interests that we share. But I don't get out fishing or boating too much anymore these days. So mostly, I just listen. My family's huge. It's complicated. I've loved and 
been angry with nearly all of them for both good and selfish reasons at some point in my life, but I consider myself one of the very lucky ones. My scales always tip towards loving most of them nearly all of the time. I forgive them their trespasses and their imperfections, just like I hope that they love me enough to do likewise. It took me 40 years to accept myself. I didn't fully come to terms with being and calling myself trans until a couple of years ago. So by that math, I give them another 42 years of practice before I will start to expect them all to have it down perfect. Fair is fair. <laughs> if I were to meet your son and he were to ask my advice, which is unlikely, I would tell him this. If you are going to be a man, then please be a good man. Be a, be a kind man. Be a feminist man. Do not try to fit into mainstream male culture by rejecting and reviling the feminine, not in you and not in the world. I would tell him to cry in public as much as he wants, just to make ro more room for everyone to cry in public. I would tell him I am crying as I write this right now. I would tell him to write poems instead of punching walls. And I would tell him to try to be kinder to his mother, that she is doing the best she can to understand. I never really related to this theory that being trans meant that my body didn't match my brain. Imagine telling a kid that. The one thing you cannot escape, your body? I feel like this is a very handy narrative that puts all the pressure and responsibility for change onto trans people and off of the rest of society. If we could just grow a beard or not have a penis or an Adam's apple, if we were shorter or taller or skinnier or hairier or less hairier, if our breasts were bigger or removed, if we could take and pay, from, pay for and heal from all the steps that we would need to go through so that nobody could tell anymore that we were trans. then we could be happy? Psh. My day-to-day -day struggles are not so much between me and my body. I'm not trapped in the wrong body. I'm trapped in a world that makes very little space for bodies like mine. I live in a world where my trans sisters are routinely murdered without consequence or justice. I live in a world where trans youth get kicked out onto the street by their parents who think their God is standing behind them as they close their front doors on their own children. Going to the beach, it's an act of bravery for me. None of this is a battle between me and my own flesh. For me to be free, it's a world that needs to change, not trans people. So I know that your kind and loving, thoughtful child is still there, and I know he needs you to love him right now to help make up for a world that often does not. My Aunt Nora told me a few years ago that all through my teens, she could see that I was not comfortable in my own skin, but that she had no words for what seemed to be troubling me. So she had no way to help me. It's 30 years later. We have words for what is troubling your son, and he has found them, and he is using them, and so are you, and so are his father and his brothers. He has a mother who loves him enough to write someone and ask for help. He is already 30 years ahead of me. I think that's pretty much all the advice this childless writer dares to give you at this time. Please give my best to your son and to the rest of your family. 
And please, keep in touch. Thank you. We both, uh, we both um, bucked wearing the Madonna headset. It might be a gender identity thing, I don't know. But, um, so we're just gonna pass these back and forth. You all right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Hello. Is everyone all right? We're all good? Feeling, feeling okay? Um, Oh, me too. Does that, uh, do you get over there at any point, performing? Apparently not. Okay, great. Cool. Have I turned this off with my... Oh, someone's running at us. Oh, right, yep. No, you're allowed. Pretty good faces. Look at us. Um, cool, so we've got a little bit of time now where we're just going to... I've got some questions and then we might open it to the floor for a few questions from... From y'all, um, good-looking people out there. Um, so, I just wanted to ask some questions about um, storytelling as a as a kind of style or an art form, because it's quite a. Um, I think that it's a, it's a, you know it's steeped in tradition. I think, but it's quite rare to see what you do, um, in in these kind of festivals and stuff. So, um, what what sets storytelling apart as a style, and why do you love it so much? Um, I, I don't think I don't see it set apart as a style in many ways. I I think that really I am a very traditional storyteller um, uh, in the in the practice in the craft. Um, potentially, sometimes my subject matter is not that traditional, but the actual art form itself is very ancient. And uh, and I come from a Roma and Irish family, and I'm actually not even the best storyteller in my family. And uh, um, yeah, so, and I, I've, I, I think that storytelling runs through um, every good art. Uh, I, I see it all the time in writing. Um, uh, I see it in, in poetry. I see it in filmmaking, for sure. I even see it in dance and um, uh, 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 even paintings sometimes. Um, I, so I, I feel like it's, I think it's the, for me, it's definitely a through line through most of the, uh, art practices that I really um, that really move me. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, so a lot of your um, writing and performance is kind of quite autobiographical, I guess. Um, so how do you how do you kind of balance um, kind of uh, you mentioned it in that story that you um, the letter that you wrote about how you kind of respond and sort of say you know can I use some of this? I'm gonna. Um, so how do you kind of balance like truth and privacy and that kind of thing? And what's the impact on your family, does, how did your mum feel about the fact that you're telling a bunch of people from Christchurch about, about her secrets? Um, I don't know that I said anything about her secrets. Yeah, um, maybe in some ways. Uh, and it's been a real process, a learning process for me over the years. I have, in my first book, I said something that was not necessary, um, that I didn't real, realize was as private as it was about one of my uncles, and I still feel bad. I mean, when you're a 26-year-old writer scribbling literally on bar napkins, um, even when you publish that first book, there's, um, and that was before any social media 
stuff had come out. That was in 1996, so it was you know, in the olden times. Um, uh, you don't realize that, you know, I thought, of, well, I wouldn't want my grandma to read that story, so I just won't give her the book. That was my 26-year-old <laughs> logic. And, um, and uh, you know, and I think when I first started, I think my family would prefer I didn't, and many families are like this, would prefer that we don't talk about anything at all. But um, I don't think that that's, gonna change the world. And, uh, s but over the years I've, I, I've come up with very strict uh, criteria for myself um, when, I'm, when I'm writing about anyone. Um, and it's not about permissions, because uh, what are you gonna do if you write the best thing you ever wrote and then you ask them if you could, you know? So what it's about is I try to honor the people that I'm writing about. And I look at my own motivations really deeply. And if I feel like my, my motivation is less than stellar, uh, if I'm trying to have the last word, or um, if I'm trying to like, prove that I'm smarter than someone or that I'm more right than they are. And the, the, like my Uncle Dave, I've written about him a little bit, the Catholic priest. N not so much in that story, but in another story that's um, what I do is I really, really, really spend with the so-called bad characters or difficult characters, I spend the most time looking inside me for compassion for that person as a human. And, uh, and so and I, basically, if I had to sum it all down, it's the, to just use your powers for good. Yeah. Cheers. Um, are, there, are there stories that you, you kind of choose to write now that you might not have Previously, like, does it change over time, the way that you write? I hope so. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> um, um, so you do a bit of um, work in schools, right, with um, high schoolers, and um, you, we were really lucky to have you at the Qtopia event on Thursday, and I know that um, I could sort of see it in the kids that were there, the impact. Um, so maybe I would like to hear a little bit about your work in schools and the, um, the kind of things that you see, maybe some of the conversations that you've had with high schoolers and the impact that it has. Yeah, I have a one, one hour kind of anti-bullying themed uh, um, show that I take to high schools. I, I do up to a thousand kids at a time in a gymnasium. Uh, with usually a bad sound system and fluorescent lights, and it's often Friday afternoon at two o'clock <laughs> before a long weekend, and they've all got smartphones. And um, <laughs> I do it for lots of reasons, and not the smallest reason is that it makes this seem like a luxury. <laughs> You've all paid and lined up and are wanting to be here, and some of you even know or care who I am. And some of you might have attention spans longer than four and a half minutes, too, so it's, it's really a luxury. Um, but uh, um, one of the things that I consistently, uh, repeatedly, and I stress out every time, I'm, I think I'm starting to learn I'm kind of an anxious person. And um, so I stress out every time, and, uh, and I get my agent sometimes sends me to like very, very small towns, and I've had everything happen everything, like kids having epileptic attacks and falling off the bleachers halfway through, and like me freezing, of course, like, 
and the librarian just going. <laughs> I was in Oregon and I had, uh, um, uh, they didn't tell me this, but I knew something was up because I pulled up in my truck and there was about 60 kids in a pouring rain in full rainbow regalia, including a kid holding a gigantic wet rainbow flag. Um, he was wearing one of those harnesses like that you have a marching thing where you put your flag in. So, and it was very windy and he weighed about 90 pounds soaking wet. So he basically had a large rainbow mainsail attached to him. He's blowing around and they're waiting out there. And then next to them is uh, this contingent of, um, have you seen those like when they, when they storm into like a polygamist camp and uh, there's all the ladies with the dresses that come up to here, down to here and down to here. So there was about 40 of them uh, with their, they were so horrified by that I was coming to their public school, what I was going to say to their 12-year-olds that they had r wrangled up all their two-year-olds and brought them to, to come and listen to me uh, to make sure if I said anything offensive, it, this is how America works, okay? This is a very terrifying neighbor we have in Canada. So they were, gonna, they were waiting to see if I was going to say anything offensive so that they could, um, they could uh, basically s stop me from talking and stand up and protest. And so then there was the, the principal was there. They'd hired extra security. They were all milling around. The principal was there. She was wearing a leather skirt and very tall matching boots, which for some reason I found comforting. I was like, she's in charge and she's not gonna let these people fuck with me. I said, it's gonna be fine. She took me into the office and she's like, okay, so we got a situation here. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> I noticed, I noticed. She said, just act, just act like it's just a nor like just be normal. Just pretend none of this is happening. And I was like, oh yeah, okay. Oh, and I forgot the part where the, the, the gay straight alliance kids at the school, when they caught wind that the moral majority was gonna, who are the moral minority. And, but anyway, um, they, they were, when they had caught wind that there was gonna be this counter protest, they got very angry. And so they, they had a bake sale. I'm not making this up. <laughs> they had a bake sale and they, um, they saved up all their money and they got t-shirts made up with my face on them <laughs> with, with a quote of mine. I can't remember what the quote said. And uh, something uplifting. And um, so I go into the gymnasium. I'm, I'm attempting to be normal. <laughs> just act like nothing is going on. And there's all these angry rainbow children. My face times 50 <laughs> staring back at me. All the polygamists lined up with their toddlers in their lap waiting for me to say the wrong thing. And I do my regular show, which is basically the moral of it is don't be an asshole to each other <laughs> and let everybody have a public education. So I'm fond of pontificating on radical concepts like that. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, afterwards, this kid wearing a Boy George t-shirt puts his hand up. I have a question. He says, uh, so... No offense, because you were very funny and you're a nice stand-up comedian and everything, but like I got bussed in here from a private, from a, from like an alternative school and I had to get up like an hour and 15 minutes earlier than I usually have to get up to come here and then he didn't say one single gay thing at all.
So I, I think that everyone, regardless of your gender or your race or your gender identity or even your religion, <laughs> has a right to a public education. I'm really glad you're here. And uh, yeah, and so, so yeah, that's the work in schools. Um, <laughs> but what I was gonna say is that every time I do it, I get really nervous and then afterwards, I meet these kids and I'm like, there's no way I was that smart when I was 16 years old. It, there's just no way. And anyone who works with youth now, I'm sure that you would echo that sentiment that, you know, I know we're going to hell in a handbasket and everything, but we're in good hands. <laughs> so I take my chart in that all the time. Thanks. It's hilarious. <laughs> so we have seven minutes left according to that clock. Three minutes according to my watch, but that's fast. <laughs> um, so, six, six. Um, so, I know that you were going to do a couple of wee short Doritos. Um, are you keen for that still? Are we keen for that? Awesome. Alrighty, back, back to you. I, I, I noticed it when I was sitting there, actually. The whole time? <laughs> Here we go. Oh, do you want the stand? We're wasting your valuable. Go, go, go. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay, so uh, I, I wrote, I, I, I've, I'm working on this new form. I, I'm sure someone's done it before, but it's for this type of a deal. You guys, well, we didn't actually get any questions from the audience, because usually we do a question and answer. There's some... It's not always a guy, but it's often a guy, let's be honest. But they, it's not a question. They just want to talk and say they, they want to show the whole room that they know about something about something, and then they kind of trail off into some awkward thing, potentially a challenge at the end, and sort of gauntlet is thrown down, and then it's like, oh, thanks for coming. And that's where we leave it. So now I've done this thing where it's like, no, I, I will end it. Um, so and uh, so I've, I'm, I like to write these little things, I call them literary Doritos, they're very short little stories, let's see. <sighs> Semi-drunk and definitely creepy dude in the lineup at the market to uninterested young mother. Is that a new baby? <laughs> young mother retorts coolly. Is there even such a thing as an old baby? <laughs> me, in the airport. I sure get a lot of these pat-downs. These machines hate me because I'm trans. Did you press the pink or the blue button? The security guard. These machines hate me too because I'm covered in piercings and I have four screws in my leg. There's no button for that. <laughs> In Fargo, North Dakota, I prepay $65 for gas. My gas tank will only take $53. I go back into the gas bar to get my change. I guess I am used to Canadian gas prices, I explain. There's this random dude, he doesn't appear to work there. He's hanging around talking to the clerk. He said, you're from Canada? We're like neighbors, aren't we? We, we share a border, North Dakota, 
in Manitoba. Anyway, yeah, yeah, I say, uh, we're right on top of you. He's, I know, right? I don't know what I was thinking. He's, he snorts. Nobody's on top of us, you faggot. This is America. They're not going to think that's as funny in Australia. <laughs> now, are they? <laughs> Technically, I say, backing out of the door, we are on top of you. Geographically, dude, not sexually. <laughs> He's right, the female clerk says to the dude, and go home now, Eddie. You're starting to get on my last nerve. I gotta end on the right note. Hang on, just give me a sec here. <laughs> okay, um, yeah, I got it. I'm flying to Calgary, no checked luggage. I'm waiting for my suitcase to go through the x-ray. When I see on this x-ray screen a giant dildo <laughs> in someone's carry-on bag. So I glance nonchalantly at the, at the woman beside me She's fairly straight-faced. I look over at the, at the man on the other side of me. He's not paying any attention. Then I realize that that's my bag <laughs> on the screen. At first, I was very confused. I was having just packed my bag for a solo overnight work gig. I was presenting, actually, to an interfaith Con uh, conference in Calgary, Alberta to a bunch of religious people of many denominations. I was by myself. I had no dildo in my bag. Okay? So <laughs> the technician is now looking at me, as is the woman and the man. Everyone is looking at me. It's a microphone! <laughs> I say out loud to nobody and everybody. It's a vocal microphone! Nobody says anything. Microphone! I repeat. <laughs> uh, so I, w I really want to thank Rachel King and the entire staff of the ch of the of Word Fest, Word Churchill. That really, it's been a really amazing time. They made me do some things I did not want to do, like improv comedy. And, um, but it was, it was fine, right? Um, so I just want to close with this very short one. Um, and thank you all for being here today. My new shirt. It's plaid on the outside. But with flowers on the inside. Just like me. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much.